and we'll get in the Word. Father God, I thank you so much for um, the opportunity that we have this morning, um, not to sing songs and not to give money and not to fellowship, but to do it as a way of, um, of worshiping you, of knowing you, of, of being with you, not just some things we've been doing towards you, but something this morning we've been doing with you because you are with us and you live in us. And Father, I pray that as we go through your word this morning, we would be reminded that you are not a God who is far off. You are a God who is with us. You are a God who is in us. You are a God who is among us. And may we be reminded of that this morning because we need that in this world that is so set against us and you. May we be reminded you are a God who is near. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Somebody pick up your phone there. Uh, so uh, I've told you this before. Uh, this is nothing new. Um, but I have always been someone who, um, before preaching, uh, I am always in my office and I am always in prayer. And I always do it because I know I have to be. Because I know after a week of study and being in the Word, I always have this, this um, kind of cognizant uh, thing going on where I know that I cannot do up here what needs to be done today and I know that I cannot share words that would uh, bless you or change your life because I don't have words like that. I don't have power like that. God does and so I'm, I've just always been very cognizant of that and, I, and I've always prayed a lot. In the, in the early years when I came to Gateway, I would be so nervous and I've shared this before, but so nervous um, in the morning that my stomach would be upset. I would often be praying uh, in the bathroom. I won't go any farther than that, but just like, and then I, after a couple years, you know, I kind of got, got over that, and I'd still be in my office praying, and then I don't know how long ago it was. I don't, maybe it was 10 years ago, longer than that. I got in this habit where I began to pray um, on my knees um, instead of in the comfort of my chair, and the reason that I prayed on my knees was actually, I wanted to reflect in my prayer physically, and I wanted to be reminded, and knees are a good way of doing this, that I was completely um, reliant on God, that I had nothing in myself to offer, that I, uh, had, I had no power to deliver the word or to bless you in any ways. And so to be on my knees was a way of submitting to God and telling God I'm 100% completely reliant on you and what I'm about to do. And I would do that like uh, between services. I'll go do it again. Uh, and so that was my practice for years. And it was good for me because I don't like being on my knees and it hurts to be on my knees. So when I'm on my knees, it reminds me, why am I on my knees? Well, I'm remembering that I'm completely and utterly dependent upon God. But then a few years ago, I don't know, maybe it was five years ago or so, I, I don't remember why, I must have been reading a passage or thinking about something, and I, and I started this new practice where I would get on one knee, only one knee, right, and I have one knee up, and that was supposed to be representative, I know this, you're in, getting into my psyche now, but, um, you know, it reminded me that I could just stay in my office, and I could pray up until the moment it was time to preach. Certainly, it would be uh, worthy of that kind of prayer. But I was reminded that um, you guys are down here and I need to get up and get moving and be down and say hi to people and pray for people and bless them. And so it always reminded me like, yeah, I need to be on my knees, but I also need to move at some point. I need to get going. And so that's what it reminded me of. And well, I'd be down on one knee. And for me, being on one knee, for some reason, hurts more than being down on two knees. So it was painful and it reminded me, how long am I gonna be on my knees? I need to 
get up and go be with people so I can start, stop hurting. So anyways, that was all great. It was what it was. And then um, a little while back, I had something happen. I was in my office and I was getting ready. I don't know if you've ever had that dream where you're trying to get on stage or get to school or get to work and you can't get there and everything gets in your way. And it was happening one of those mornings and I was in my office and I could hear the worship service going on. And I don't know if I was going to come pray or I was going to come do scripture reading. I don't remember what it was. I just remember being in my office, gathering my stuff and hearing a song and realizing I had about 60 seconds to get from my office all the way downstairs and up onto the stage and I panicked. So I grabbed my stuff and I began to run down the hallway. And as I ran down the hallway, I stopped because I realized I hadn't prayed on my knees. And so I kind of did this like, you know, do I go back to my office and pray? I'll be late. Do I go? Which one do I do? And so anyways, I, I ended up going back to my office and I got down on my knees really quick and I prayed amen and I got up and I ran downstairs and I ran up here so I was, I, I was late getting up here. And afterwards, uh, what I realized was um, that I had a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the problem was this, that something that had been meaningful and purposeful had become a ritual. Right? I knew it. It had become for me a ritual. It's the only reason, right? Because I could have prayed while I was running downstairs God would have probably been okay with that, knowing what I know about God. He wouldn't have been like, all right, well, you're, you know, you didn't pray, so forget it. Like the whole sermon's going to be a waste. As if there was some kind of power or some kind of benefit that I could derive for preaching by getting on my knees apart from actually just spending time with God. And I think that we can do that. I think there's all sorts of ways that we can do that, where we can take perfectly good things and we can turn them into some kind of ritual where somehow we are trying to derive some kind of benefit from God apart from actually having a relationship or diving into a relationship with God. Like, a really easy one is praying for meals. I mean, praying for a meal is a great thing to do. But how many of you at times have allowed praying for a meal to simply spin down into a ritual and that's all it is? It's not a, a meaningful, deep prayer and connecting with God and thanking Him for this food. It's simply that you don't want that sushi to make you sick. You know, you're just, you're thinking like, if I don't pray for this food, have you ever done that? Like you take a few bites and you're like, oh no, we didn't pray. And then you have to pray, right? Well, why do you have to do that? Well, we're afraid. We might get sick. Or, or have you ever come into a worship service and sang a song that had great, wonderful words, but you're just singing the song? You weren't communing with God. It wasn't really a gift to him. You weren't thinking about him. Have you ever given money to God? Again, not as an act of worship, but you know, oh, well, they're taking the offering. I'm going to put some money in. I'm going to put it in because I've heard stories or a sermon like God's going to take all my money if I don't give some to him. And so I'm just going to stick it in there. It becomes a ritual. It's a ritual, you know, maybe praying for food so you don't get sick. Uh, maybe giving money so you don't, you know, you don't lose everything you have. You make God mad. Maybe it's not about reading your Bible. Have you ever read your Bible just because you're supposed to read your Bible? Like, oh, I got I to gotta check off the box today. Oh, I better read my Bible today. I got I to gotta get it read. I got to listen to the daily audio Bible or whatever it is. You're not even listening. You're not doing it so that you can be with God. You're just doing it because you believe that there's some kind of benefit that you can derive apart from just being with God himself. Or maybe doing ministry in some way. There was a time you did it as a way of worshiping God and connecting, and now sometimes you just do it to do it. And the danger is that we can begin to attempt to access the blessings of God instead of God himself. 
And if that doesn't make sense, well, we have two stories today that are often preached separately, but we're gonna look at them together because I think in the Greek text, they belong together and they challenge us in this area that I hope will make sense. Uh, I wanna begin by talking in the first story that we're gonna see in the first few verses about this idea of an impersonal faith, how someone can have faith and yet it's really not that personal. So again, let's go back and look at the story in chapter five, verse one, it begins this way. Now after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's, he's traveling around and he goes to this feast of the Jews. Now it's very unusual for John not to name what feast it is. And since he doesn't name the feast, I can only surmise that it's not important. It just doesn't matter, just move along. So it says that, that he's gone to Jerusalem from Galilee. Now the, the trip from Jerusalem to Galilee is about 62 to 70 miles, um, depending on what part of Galilee you're starting in and going down. So again, you know, today we're like 70 miles. I could do that in an hour. I just came from Phoenix. You know, you could do that in 45 minutes in Phoenix. You can get down there. Uh, no problem at all. That's if you're get out of the fast lane. Um, but back then, it would have been a trip of two to three days, 20, 30 miles that you're walking a day, depending on uh, how healthy you are at the time. So it was a trip. Took a few days to do that. In verse two, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, this, this pool is called Bethsaida. And it has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, people who were blind and lame and paralyzed. So it tells us that there was a, a pool. Um, in fact, archeologists have uncovered a pool uh, broken into two sections, and they tell us that it looks a little something like this. If you can see this, this is a rendering based on the archeological dig. Um, it's, in fact, each one of these pools is the size of a football field and about 20 feet deep and it had this, this roofed area. In fact, this is, uh, you probably can't make a lot out of it, this is actually a picture of, um, this is kind of the, this held up the roof that went around uh, the pools. And so you can go there today and, and you can see that area and the roof provided shade for people and it tells us that there were three categories, if you will, of sick people who were there. There were people who were blind, there are people who were lame, which was a, a physical disability of a, you know, basically an improperly functioning body part. You couldn't walk, your legs didn't work, or you, you know, you couldn't, your hands didn't work. And then there was, in this text it says paralyzed, which is a common translation, but the word literally means withered. So there are diseases that could cause a disability in different limbs. And the point is you have people here who are very sick. They're, they're physically ill and they, you know, they need assistance from people in the community. And then in the second half of verse three, it explains a little bit. So this is not in the original text. It was most assuredly not written by John himself. It was likely added as some kind of background commentary, uh, commentary from a, uh, a scholar or a scribe or an interpreter years later who put this in. And they probably put it in because they wanted to provide some background material that you know, 2,000 years later you and I wouldn't have any clue about. So it gives us a little background here. It says this, now the people who were sick were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the waters. And whoever then first after the stirring of the waters stepped in was made well uh, from whatever disease which he was afflicted. Now again, this isn't part of the original text, it's uh, added later, but it gives us possibly some, some background on what's going on here. So scholars tell us that these pools 
were fed by what we might today call artisan wells or they were like mineral hot springs. And people considered that kind of water to have um, medicinal healing properties, which, by the way, a lot of people today still believe the same thing, and they'll go to mineral hot springs because they think, you know, they can receive healing somehow. And so there was this legend that God would randomly send an angel capriciously down to uh, flitter atop the pool waters and stir up the water. And when that happened, the first person who could get in the water would be healed of whatever disease they had. And so people came from all over to be healed. Now we don't, we don't know how this legend got started. Who knows? Maybe somebody was healed at some point. And they're like, I saw the water stir right beforehand and this whole legend got started at that and Bigfoot probably at the same time. And uh, so anyways, this legend gets started. And that, but that's the point. All these people are here for this reason. Verse five, now there was one man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, He said to him, he asked him a question. He said, do you want to be healed? So there's this man who's unnamed. We don't know his name. and We do know that he was unable to walk for 38 years. And the implication simply is this. His situation was beyond hope. I mean, after 38 years of praying for something and nothing happens, you gotta admit, you're starting to lose a little hope there. And that's kind of his point. Nothing else had been able to help him in all these years. So picture Jesus, he's, he's going, it's a picture of summertime day and everybody's there and they got their umbrellas and their floaty toys and you know, there's water and people are all over the place and Jesus is walking through this crowd of sick people who are all over the place and, and they're gathered there because there's this legend, there, there's this superstition Um, It's not real, it's not gonna actually heal them, but they don't know that, and he's walking among them as their creator, as the one who made them and designed them, and they don't even know it. They're staring at the water, watching if it might stir, and they're not looking at him. And he walks up to this this one random guy, and he asks him, do you wanna be healed? Now it's interesting, because all the commentaries that I read, everyone said the same thing. It's an odd question for Jesus to ask this guy. It'd be like walking up to a student who's been in the library studying all day for a test and asking, do you want to pass a test? Right, that's a dumb question to ask in a way. It's like talking to an athlete who's been working out hard and asking, do you want to win? It's like asking somebody who's been pursuing a relationship, right? Pursuing it hard, asking, do you want to succeed? Of course they do. That's why they're working at it. That's why they're pursuing it. Does the man want to be healed? Of course he does. That's why he's there. So why is Jesus asking him this obvious question? And so there's a lot of theories scholars uh, have about this. Some say, well, Jesus just wants a man to confess with his mouth his desire to be healed and his need. I read a couple that were actually kind of harsh. They, they actually thought that the man is just satisfied with a life of handouts and assistance, and he, he knows if he gets healed, he'll have to get a job and have to work, and he probably doesn't want to. So, I mean, that's kind of harsh. They're like, this guy's just lazy. But, but I actually, so I'll, I'll admit to you the other day, I was just meditating on this passage in particular, and I had this thought. So this is just me, all right? This is not a commentary anywhere, so take it for what it's worth. But I had this thought as I was meditating on the passage. It's almost as if Jesus, um, omniscient Jesus, who knows everything, it's almost as if Jesus, who uh, has been up in heaven receiving the prayers of people over the years, I believe that he's been the mediator between God and man uh, eternally, not just after the crucifixion uh, and the resurrection and the ascension. As one who's been receiving prayers, it's almost like Jesus looks at the man and he asks him, I'm wondering if you'd like to be healed because we've never really had this conversation before. I don't ever remember you praying and and seeking 
God's assistance. The only thing I remember you praying for is, God, please bring somebody along who will pick me up and put me in the water. That's not the same thing as what I'm offering you. We've never talked about this, so I'm just wondering, <laughs> would you like to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, like notice, I have no one to put me into the pool. I almost picture Jesus like going, wait, that's not what I asked you, right? But again, look at what he says. I have nobody to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps in before me. So he doesn't say, hey, I've been here praying for 38 years. I've been seeking God's help. Instead, he just complains and he blames. In fact, it's interesting, most commentators say that when you dig down into the Greek, what you have is a grumpy old man just griping and complaining. He says, no one will help me get in the water. Everyone's selfish. Everyone's looking out for themselves and he's just blaming everyone else. But notice, he thinks that God has made access to his own power and care and that he's turned it into a lottery or a competition. God is, it's like God has said, I have the power to heal you and I care about you, but I'm not gonna personally no, I'm gonna create a little, like, you know, survivor thing over here, and you're gonna all have a competition. And I'm just gonna stand over here, and I'm not gonna, it's not gonna be about prayer or anything else. I'm just gonna let you battle it out. It's almost as if God's care had been turned into a lottery. And that God had set the whole thing up and stepped away, and now he's just a, he's just a spectator. And the irony, of course, is that the one person who can help him is standing right there before him, but he's already decided that the solution is a couple feet away in the water. Like the answer is right in front of him and he cannot see it because he's decided that God has another way for him. He believes that God has infused the water of those pools with power that is from God, but that God isn't personally involved in. And Jesus is confronting that, that impersonal belief. See, because Jesus is God, and he is very personal. He is rebuking that entire idea of the impersonal power of God by standing before him in person. Emmanuel, God, is with us. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. So Jesus gives him very quickly three commands. Get up, that's new. Nobody said that to him in years. He hadn't done that in a long time if he'd ever done it. Get up, pick up your bed. That thing that you've been sitting on that's supporting you for the last 38 years, now you're gonna pick it up and you're gonna support that. You're gonna carry it off, right? An amazing thing and start walking. And while this man is waiting for the impersonal power of God in a pool, this, this man is confronted by a God who is very personal. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, well, it is the Sabbath. <laughs> not like, wow, you've been healed. They're like, dude, it's the Sabbath, right? And, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. And he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk. And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. That word in the Greek means to turn your head to the side. It's kind of like he just tucked himself into the crowd. For Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. So in all the commotion, Jesus just slips away. And the man doesn't know, that it was, you know who Jesus was, who the man was that healed him. And, he, and interestingly, he, just, he blames Jesus 
for him breaking the Sabbath. He just kind of throws Jesus under the bus. Like, I don't know who it was, but you know, he's the one who told me to get up and walk. Can you imagine that? And so it's not my fault. Verse 14, now afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well. Now sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus finds him in the temple a little bit later because he has a message for him. He's got to follow this up. And he says to him, sin no more. Not really popular words in our culture today. We love the Jesus who heals. We're not so much about the sinning no more thing. So there's several possible interpretations about what this means when Jesus says sin no more. I mean, besides the obvious thing, like don't, don't sin anymore. But some people wonder like, so what is, what's the point here? Now, one interpretation is that this man's illness was due to some specific sin that he had did and maybe had continued to do and done for 38 years. And we know that sometimes illness is the direct result or consequence of sin. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about that. He talks about people come together to take communion and they did it improperly. And Paul says some were weak and some were ill and some were even dead because of their sin. Sometimes illness is the direct result of your sin, but not always. Right? Some say this man's illness probably wasn't the result of his sin at all. Sometimes sickness is just the indirect result of living in a sin-filled, messed up, sinful, infected world that's even made its way into our DNA, and sometimes that just happens. A third option is that this man's illness was actually all part of God's good plan for him, and again, not the result of his sin or anyone else's. In John chapter 9, so we're in five, four chapters ago, we'll be there probably in half a year, uh, when we get there, there's a story about a man who was born blind, and Jesus says it's not because of anyone's sin, not because of his or, or his parents, but it was a plan of God. It was a whole plan to bring glory to God. Regardless, Jesus' message is still the same. He gives the man a warning. His warning is this. As bad as physical illness is, as bad as the last 38 years have been, there's something even worse than that. And that is to die apart from knowing Jesus Christ. To face the judgment of God apart from faith. Ultimately, it's been said that the sin Jesus is referring to here is the sin of unbelief. Uh, William Clink put it this way, said the unwillingness to believe that Jesus is the one in whom God the Father is revealed and through whom God's power works. To reject Jesus is the sin that he's talking about here. So he would be saying, you need to believe in me. It's not enough that you've been healed, now you need to believe. And so we have this story of healing and the story is great and, and God can heal and God can do the impossible and he's not an impersonal power uh, to be accessed. It's, you know, he doesn't play a lottery with his, his power and his love. He's personal and we ought to seek relationship with Jesus. But there's more to the story because if you keep reading on, what you find is an, another adjacent story about what I'm gonna call a God-less practice. A little bit different story, but really I think in the end, it's the same thing. So in verse 9, let's, let's back up a little bit and let's read this. So, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked, and now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, notice that word's going to come up a lot, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. So when it says that day was the Sabbath, it almost seems incidental, but it's actually very key to the story. It's the bridge, it's the hinge between the first story of the man being healed and the second story about Jesus having to run in with the Jewish leaders. So the Sabbath, we're going to talk about this, and it's going to come up a lot in the book of John. The Sabbath is command four of the big 10 commandments. We can go back to Exodus chapter 20 and, and read about this command. It says, remember the Sabbath day 
to keep it holy. That word holy means separate, if you will. Um, Six days you shall labor, and you shall do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made uh, heaven and earth and, and the sea and all that is in them, and then he rested. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and he made the day holy. He made it separate from all the other days. Now, the Old Testament prohibited working on the Sabbath. And I find there's a lot of confusion among people about the Sabbath, and that's fair, because there's a lot of confusion even amongst theologians as they debate the the Sabbath. What we know is this, that in essence, it prohibited working on the Sabbath, but it didn't specify exactly what work was. It didn't just spell it out. It didn't give us a definition of that. Scholars will tell you this. It, it most likely includes one's vocation. Just logically, it at least involves that. So in other words, it's kind of, think of your normal six-day-a-week job. Today, in this day, we have five-day work week, but that, back then it was six days. And um, so consider your normal six-day-a-week job. Right, maybe out of the house doing something, maybe you were stay at home, and so you're doing chores and, and work, and it could involve your job and coming home and gathering firewood and making a fire, because all, you know, if you didn't do that, you didn't eat and you didn't live. So it was the, the stuff that you did on a regular basis to stay alive, making money uh, for the household, all that, chores and jobs. And now eventually, Israel uh, moves into the promised land, and they take the idea of the Sabbath with them. But over time, Scripture says, they begin to profane the Sabbath, meaning they make it common. They make it like every other day. Uh, there's a lot of uh, prophets talking about how the Israelites wanted to work and sell goods on the Sabbath and all that stuff and how leaders were always trying to stop them from doing that. But eventually, we know that they profane the Sabbath, they don't keep it, and they get carried away into exile. They become captives to Assyria and Babylonia. And we know that part of this is because they were breaking the Sabbath. It was one of the reasons they did this. So over time, Jewish rabbis, they they didn't want to see that happen anymore. They didn't want to see judgment, harsh judgment come on Israel because they were breaking the Sabbath. And so they set out to um, protect the Sabbath, if you will. How can we... Um, keep Israel from breaking the Sabbath. We, you know, we can't just, we just can't trust these people to not work. So what are we going to do? So over time, the Jewish rabbis, in, they use the word interpreted, they interpreted the Sabbath law by creating 39 categories of prohibitions, and each one of those 39 categories had subcategories within them. So in other words, the idea was people are too stupid um, to just not work on the Sabbath. They've already proven that. So we're going to make 100,000 rules so that they don't even get close to breaking the Sabbath. 39 categories included, uh, you know, carrying, burning, extinguishing, writing, erasing, cooking, tying knots, untying knots, all kinds of stuff. Um, And there's just tons and tons of these prohibitions. Let me just read you a few of them. I'm sure you've heard many of them over the years. Let me read a few. One of the rules was this. A person could not look in a mirror or a piece of glass on the Sabbath, because if they did, they might see a gray hair, and if they saw a gray hair, they might attempt to pull it, and that would be working a violation of the Sabbath. You could not wear false teeth on the Sabbath, because if they fell out, you might be tempted to pick them up. Yeah. Um, you could not travel more than 1,000 yards from your house on the Sabbath, not more than 1,000 yards. Seems pretty clear. I don't know how they got to that number, but there was a workaround. If you, the day before, went 1,000 yards from your house, and... Um, 
and then you uh, set up a, a little tent uh, or a little meal, that's, then that's like your second residence. And then you could travel a thousand uh, yards to that house and then you could travel a thousand yards more. And if you were really industrious, you could have set it up all you know, the way down the road. You think, well, that doesn't sound right. Here's one, you could dip a radish in salt, but you couldn't leave it there for more than a few minutes because it might pickle. And that would be a violation of the Sabbath. So the idea was this, in order to protect the Sabbath, they built what I call fences. Right, so here's the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. Oh, we're not sure we trust you with that, so we're gonna build a fence. Don't travel more than a 1,000 yards. And they build another fence and a fence, and so they, eventually you couldn't get anywhere near the Sabbath. Now, if that sounds silly, let me just suggest that it still happens today even amongst Christians. So let me just give you one example of, of, of many. Um, in Ephesians 5.18, it tells us, do not get drunk on wine. Okay, so I don't want to offend you with this, but... Um, so the idea is this, don't get drunk on alcohol. We could extend that to alcohol, right? Don't get drunk on alcohol. But here's what I've seen a lot of Christians do over the years. Not you, not us ever, but you know, other people. So, so what they'll say is things like this, don't drink alcohol. Now is that what it says? No, but they'll build a little, we're gonna build a fence. Because if you drink alcohol, you might get drunk. And if you get drunk, then you violate the, so we're gonna say this, don't, don't ever drink alcohol. So I know lots of Christians, we don't drink alcohol. Why? Well, it's biblical. Well, how so? Well, we shouldn't get drunk. Okay, so if you drink, you might get drunk, right? Here's a, here, and then you, it, it goes far. Let's build another fence. Don't allow any form of alcohol into your home. So I have families, we don't have rubbing alcohol. We don't have NyQuil in our house because if you get NyQuil, you might start chugging that stuff and then, you know, you'll be drinking alcohol and then you'll probably get drunk if you have alcohol in your house. Uh, don't go to restaurants that serve alcohol. Known families like that, like we don't go anywhere that serves alcohol because if you go to a restaurant with alcohol, you might lose your mind and order alcohol. And if you order alcohol, you might get drunk on alcohol, right? Can you see? So we're just building these fences farther and farther. Um, it goes on. I don't watch movies that have alcohol in them. Um, don't walk down, so I've actually seen this, don't walk down the grocery aisle that has alcohol, alcoholic products. I've actually run into people at Safeway, and I'll be going down, and they'll be coming the other way from Gateway, it's, it's the wine aisle or whatever, and they see me, and immediately it's like, oh, I'm going to the bread aisle, like just to make, so I know they're not like cruising, because I know if, if you go to Safeway, you might go down the alcohol aisle. If you go down the alcohol, you might buy some alcohol, and if you buy alcohol, you might take it home, you might watch a movie about alcohol, and then open alcohol and drink alcohol and get drunk. But you could see, like, that's a long way from don't get drunk, right? It's a long, long way. <laughs> Don't get drunk. That's essentially what's going on here. Sabbath rules just built a lot of fences around the Sabbath. And, but here's the problem. People were so focused on the endless and tedious rules that communion with God was actually an afterthought. Something that was meant to be deeply personal, a day of communion, a day of rest, a day of enjoying God, had turned into a dead set of rules to be obeyed. And the result was the rules became more important than the intent, which was simply to be with God and to rest. And the proof of this is when God comes in the flesh and is standing among them on the Sabbath, they reject him. They reject the Lord of the Sabbath. See, what they wanted to do is they, I, I'm gonna just put it this way, they wanted to flow chart God. So I love flow charting. I'm always like, if you and I ever talk and you're like, I wanna do this or this, I'm always saying, go flow chart that baby and bring it back to me and we'll talk about it, right? But we tr sometimes we try to do that with relationships and I would suggest sometimes people try to do that with God and I think that's what's going on here. They wanna be able to define God on a flow chart, put him in a box and know, 
how will God act, react in every single situation? I don't want to deal with a God that's wild and I don't know what to expect. Have you ever noticed that relationships don't work like that exactly, right? You can't just define someone and flowchart someone and always know what they will do and how they will act and react. I mean, if you think you can, give it a try and let me know how that goes, right? But, but, but to be fair on the Jews, I think that even we today can find a, a relationship with a holy God a bit intimidating. Right, so again, holiness refers to, of course, the moral aspect of God, but it also refers to the otherness of God. And God is very other to us, and let's, let's admit it. There are things about God that we don't understand, and there are probably some things about God that make us nervous. And one of the ways it comes out is, like, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt resistant to simply say to God, to simply pray to God, hey, God, here I am, just go ahead and do anything that you want with me today, anything. Just go for it, right? And I know some of you are like, I'd never pray that prayer. I'll end up in Africa tomorrow, you know? I'll be a missionary in Africa, or, or God will give me some disease for his glory, or something like that, right? God, do whatever you want with my health. God, do whatever you want with my job, with my relationships, with my time. You know, I'm just gonna, whatever you want, God. I know that makes us nervous. The holiness of God makes us nervous. But when we move towards God, when we, when we trust God, when we break down the fences and we get right next to God, and we live near that kind of wildness of God. That's where we discover how good God is, how trustworthy God is. We don't find it behind all the fences. And so what you have long-term is these people who no longer have this, this love and, and, and relationship with God because it's all about the rules and they can't even get close to God because of these fences. Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath and he does it on purpose. He knows it will make them mad. He knows that it will upset him. That's the purpose. Why didn't he do it on Friday? Why didn't he do it on Sunday? This man has been waiting 38 years. There's no 911 emergency going on here. There's no life-threatening thing. He's always at the pool. Why does he do it on the Sabbath? He does it for a purpose. Verse 11, but he answered them, right? The man answers the Jews. The man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk, right? They asked, who is the man who said that to you? Who is the man who said, take up your bed and walk? And a little bit later, it says, and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Not because he was doing these things, but because of the day in which he was doing these things. The irony is that this man has been sitting by a pool, waiting for magical waters to be stirred, a man who's living in superstition, and the Jews don't challenge him on that clearly unbiblical belief, but when he is miraculously healed, they only care about the day that it happens on. They don't care how it happened. They don't care about what it says about Jesus. The irony is they, they, they wanted the Sabbath more than they wanted the Lord of the Sabbath. God was right there with them. Jesus is right there with them, like, bring it in, boys, right? Like, but they won't have it, and they push him away. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is, this is a very important verse because he clarifies some Sabbath things for us. What does it mean that you can't work on the Sabbath? Actually, Jesus just, he loads this, this verse right here. Notice what he says, my father's working up till now, and in the Greek that tense is that he still is. He's been working up to now, he's never stopped working, and he still is and will continue to. His point is this, God rested 
Certainly after creating the world in six days, he rested from creating, but he wasn't inactive. He didn't stop working, he simply stopped with the creating. Think of it this way, his six day a week vocation, right, of creating the world is now done, and he's resting, but he's not inactive. After creating the world, God continually sustains the world every single moment. And therefore, working on the Sabbath is not only lawful for God, it's, it's necessary. And Jesus says, and I am working. So he equates his work with the Father's work, and in doing so, he's also claiming equality with the Father in, in terms of nature, which we'll look at next week. But for here, let's focus on this idea. His point is this, in the same way that the Father is always working. So what does that mean? Is God working even on the Sabbath? Certainly God is working, if you will, on the Sabbath. He's not creating, but he's sustaining. And in the same way, Jesus is also working. And if Jesus is guilty of breaking the Sabbath, so is the Father. J.C. Riley puts it this way. He says this. It is though Jesus said to them, though my Father rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, he has never rested, not even for a moment, from his providential governing of the world and from his merciful work of supplying the daily needs of all his creatures. Were he to rest from such work, the whole frame of nature would stand still. Life would cease to exist. Jesus goes on to say, and I also work the works of mercy on the Sabbath day. I do not break the fourth commandment when I heal the sick any more than my father breaks it when he causes the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the Sabbath. Which brings us to kind of our conclusion for this morning and we'll continue this on next week. But I want to talk for a minute just about what do, we, what do we do with this today in 2023 as we think about this whole idea. Like, How do we avoid becoming like the man who looked for God's healing apart from God? How do we avoid becoming that person who starts to just feel like God's power is something to be accessed but not God himself? How do we avoid becoming like the Jews who put distance between themselves and, a, and what should have been a vibrant relationship with God by building all of these fences? How do we do that? And I would say that the answer is simple and yet not simple. The simple answer is this. Don't merely seek things from God like healing, which you know, we may need, or forgiveness, which we certainly need, and, and provision and blessing and wisdom and direction. Yes, we should seek all those things from God. Scripture's clear. It tells us to. But more important than that, our main, our main objective is to seek God himself. So we seek God first. We seek a relationship with God first, knowing that these things are the benefits that come from knowing God. So how do we do that? Well, I, I've given you two ideas in, in your outline at the bottom of the back page. The first is this. Uh, invite God into each moment. And point one and point two are really pretty much the same in a, in a different way. What I mean is this. Be, be purposeful. Invite God into your life moment by moment by moment by moment. Right? So let me give you an example. When you wake up each day, start that day by inviting God into that moment. Right? How easy is it for us to, to wake up in the morning and just take, the, you know, take it for granted? Of course I woke up today. Of course I'm feeling okay today. Of course I have a roof over my head today. Of course I do. Right? And then we just take the gift from God and we get up and we start going. Here's a better way. Start by inviting God into that moment. When you wake up in the morning, <laughs> you know, you're a little groggy, like it's always good to say, God, you know, just come on in right now. Come into this mess, in, in, into my grogginess. Like to invite him in, right? When you're praying for a meal, invite God into that. Don't just, pro, what, whatever formula, like get rid of that formula. Get rid of that thing and just talk to God. 
Just, there's no formula praying for a meal that somehow blesses it more than another. Just thank God for the meal and just engage, just invite him into the moment. Invite him into the meal. It's a great way to not take meals for granted. Stop just praying this magical prayer that will keep you from getting sick from eating that thing, right? And instead, invite God in the meal. Invite God into your Bible reading. Don't just read the Bible today because, oh, I gotta read the Bible. I gotta keep up. I'm not gonna get through it in a year. I gotta check off the box. No, invite God into it. God, come on in this morning and be with me in this reading. I need you to bring this alive to me. Invite God into every song we sing in here. Right, it's so easy to come in and just sing a song. Oh, I like this song. Oh, I don't like this song. Oh, wait a minute. Did I feed the cat? Did I, oh, did I leave the oven on? Like, instead, right, be thoughtful. Invite God into that song, every single song. Right? Invite God into your giving. When you give to God, be thoughtful about it. Invite God into the sermon. Right? This is just not like 45 minutes to be like, oh man, that was, but I got it done, so God's going to bless me. There's some kind of benefit that comes from that. I filled in the blanks, right? Invite God into your, your relational interactions over a meal, today, afterwards. Like, don't just have conversations with people. Invite God into the conversations with people. Imagine what that could be like. Into conversations, into decisions, moments of joy. Invite God into that. The hard stuff, invite God into that. Your marriage, invite God into that. Parenting stuff, the hard stuff, the good stuff. Invite God into every moment, every moment. Shopping, when you're online, invite him into the moment. In uh, Matthew 6, you get this, like this is what I thought of. Inviting God into your prayers. Don't just pray. Invite God into your prayers. Like, that sounds weird. In uh, Matthew, Jesus talking about this very thing. Notice what he says. And when you pray, when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. And over the years, I've heard so many formulas for praying. Pray this way, pray this way. Uh, pray the prayer of Jabez. Pray the prayer of this or the that or whatever. Forget all that stuff. Just talk to God. Just have a conversation with your heavenly Father. Right, that, that's his point. Don't just think if I use a whole lot of words, God will hear me, I'll wear them out, and he'll give me whatever I want. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Wait a minute, if God knows what I need before I ask him, then why, why am I praying? Exactly, right? Because he's your Father. Pray then in this way, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, be your name. Revered be your name. Revere your God in prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. Invite God into your life, into his, you know, your, your will, your job, your relationships. Give this, uh, this day our daily bread. God, I need, I need provision from you. And forgive us our debts as, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Invite God into each moment. Here's the second idea, and I, it's a lot like the first idea, just a different word, abide. So it's the same idea, like inviting God in. Maybe here I have the idea of just staying with God. Just staying with God, moment by moment, two different words, but kind of the same thing. So a good biblical word for all this is the word abide. John 15, which we'll get to eventually down the road, Jesus says this, abide. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. That word abide, meno, in the Greek means to stay in a given place or to stay in a given state or, or relationship or to dwell or be present or remain. There you have it, right? Jesus invites us to abide, right? Invite him in and stay with him. Just stay focused on Jesus. He goes on in verse five, I'm the vine. 
you're the branches. He who abides, there's a word again. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit in his life. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse nine, just as the fathers loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So abide in the love of Christ. Don't let go of it. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Not dead religion or ritual, but my joy, and that your joy may be made full. To abide, to stay, to dwell. Sometimes it's hard. We're busy. We're distracted. There's a lot of stuff going on in our life. In a moment, we're going to take communion, and uh, I'm going to ask the guys to go back and grab uh, the communion elements, and um, but while they're doing that, and they're going to they're going to pass it out to you. And if you have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you to take the bread and the cup and hold on to that. I'll lead us through that. But while we're doing that, I'll just tell you this. So last weekend, uh, Christy and I went down to Arizona. Uh, we spent some time with some friends and, and with our daughter, Abby. And uh, we spent some time with Abby and with her guy, uh, whose name is Guy. So that, that actually works out really well. And, uh, and with her roommate. So one night we were gonna go out to dinner and Abby was like, hey, we need to go to this Mexican restaurant. It's really amazing. And she had gone there a week before when one of our sons was down with her. And she's like, so let's go there. It was great, good food, all that stuff. So she makes reservations. And uh, we, we head over there, and as we're doing, this is what I always do on these things, I pray. Because I'm easily distracted, so I always pray, Lord, help me to be present, help me to abide, moment by moment, with my daughter, with her roommate, with, with Guy, like, I wanna really be there, all right, present. Guys, you can come forward and pass out those elements. And so we go to this restaurant, and we had reservations for 8.30, and when we get there, there's like, Abby says, I, this is different than when I was here last week. There were two big dudes in black suits at the front door who would make sure that you could not get in um, unless you, your name was called. And then there was a, probably 100 people at least standing outside in 100 degree weather, just hanging out. And then there was a lady who had a couple of batons that were on fire, twirling those around. So it's just this really weird kind of scene. And I'm, I'm distracted by everything going on. I'm like, no, stay focused. My wife is the master is the master of abiding in relationships. I, I just take her cues, I watch her. She's so focused on people. And so I'm watching my wife and watch, so I'm having some conversations with Morgan and with my daughter and trying to stay focused. Finally, after waiting for 50 minutes past our reservation, um, they let us into the restaurant and now it gets even more challenging. So inside the restaurant, there's just hundreds and hundreds of people yelling and they're yelling because the music is so loud that you have to yell to talk to the person across the table from you. And so, again, being very distracted, I'm trying to, be, to stay in a conversation, yelling across the table, staying focused, not being distracted by the fire twirling people and everything that's going on, and just staying focused. And I was just thinking, like, we live in a world like that, a world that's going to do everything it can to distract us from having a relationship and abiding in Jesus Christ. Look at this. Look at that. Look at that person over there. Listen to that. We must abide. We must focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And a great place to start is with communion. It's a great place for us to remember what the Lord has done for us and to slow down for a minute. Thankfully, not a lot of distractions in here except maybe the ones up here in your head. And to take a moment and to breathe deep and to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
our Savior who came for us, who died for us, who rose for us, ascended to heaven and intercedes for us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about what it is that we're doing right now as we take communion. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul's just saying, let's remember why we do this. Jesus got together with his disciples on the night he was betrayed before he was going to the cross. He said, I'm going to go to a cross where my body is going to be broken. Later on, you'll get together with each other and you'll take this, this supper, this meal. Take that bread and remember what it represents, my body given for you. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But Paul goes on and he says this. I referred to this earlier. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup which is what we want to do right now. We want to give you a moment to, to stop, to take a breath, to talk to the Lord. Is there something you need to confess? Is there something you need to talk to him about? Is there something you need to repent of that you need to give to him? Is there something you need to thank him for? Maybe you got up this morning and you just took this today for granted. Maybe you've never actually invited God into the moment yet today. This would be a great time to do that. We have a God who is not far off. He is very near. He is with us. When we hold that bread and we hold that cup, it reminds us we have a God who is very near to us and lives in us. And he loves us. And his care for us is not capricious. It is providential. We rejoice in that. So I'm going to give you a moment. I'm going to pray for us and give you a moment to pray and to think. And when you're ready to go ahead and take the bread, to take the cup and then we'll close in a song together. Father God, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for these stories that remind us that you are a God who is near. That you desire for us not, not some kind of ritual or religion, but a relationship. You desire to have a relationship with us. And Father God, I pray this morning that anything that that separates us from you, that is getting between us and just being with you, that we would push that aside today. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.